This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and all across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we are interviewing Maureen McGee-Bollinger, Deputy Superintendent at Theodore Roosevelt National Park in northwestern North Dakota and Blake McCann, Director of Resource Management and Science at the park. Maureen has been with the National Park Service for nearly 33 years. She's been at uh, Theodore Roosevelt National Park for the past two years, was previously at Mount Rushmore for 10 years. She's worked in the Everglades at Mount Rushmore, Gateway Arch, and Independence. She holds a Master's of Science in Resource Interpretation from Stephen Austin State University, Blake began his career in wildlife management at Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and he since worked on wildlife research and management throughout the United States. His work at Theodore Roosevelt includes wildlife and livestock management, vegetation management, planning and compliance, cultural resource preservation, and fire program administration. Big job. So welcome, Maureen. It's good to be talking with you. And Blake, good to be talking with you, too. Thank so, you for the invitation. So uh, please describe uh, the park uh, at Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, how big is it? How many units? Uh, what's your visitation? Uh, what are the unique characteristics of the park? Well, Theodore Roosevelt National Park consists of 70,447 acres of land, and it's divided into three separate units. There is the South Unit, the North Unit, and the Elkhorn Ranch Unit. They're located in Billings and McKenzie counties of North Dakota. The park's got an annual visitation of approximately 800,000 visitors and has quite a few unique features, one of which is the Maltese Cross Cabin. That was Theodore Roosevelt's first cabin when he came into the Dakota Territory. It has a very significant petrified forest area and you can find petrified wood throughout the park and a really dynamic landscape that is changing all the time. And uh, where's the park headquarters? Park headquarters is located right next to the town of Medora. So Blake, are all of those three units, uh, are they all under your management? And so the the park the three units uh, reference are all under management of Theodore Roosevelt National Park. And so in terms of uh, my work areas with wildlife, compliance, et cetera, uh, would apply to all those NPS lands. you got a lot of driving to do to get around to all, all three, don't you? Yes, it would take quite a bit of driving to visit all three places in one day. Yeah, how far, how far distant is the uh, northern unit from the southern unit? Well, by highway, it takes about an hour and a half. Oh my gosh! Oh my. Uh, where are the bison located? So we have we have two herds of bison, uh, one in the north unit and a separate herd in the south unit. So oh. uh, those are the two locations, and uh, each herd has to be managed separately because they are geographically separated. So yeah, they can't they can't mingle with one another. They're separate units. Are they? Do you transfer animals between those two units? Historically, uh, the, the herd in the south unit was the first one to be established in 1956. Uh-huh. Brought in some bison from uh, Fort Niagara, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service herd. Uh-huh. 
and then in 1962 uh, transferred some animals from the south unit to start the north unit herd. I see. So they're very related. Over time, though, they were managed without additional animals being introduced, but there is a pretty large initiative with Department of Interior now uh, to look at best management practices for the species globally, and we are starting to explore uh, how we might best move animals between uh, federal herds to improve uh, genetic diversity, uh-huh. and we right. started to evaluate that at our park. We brought some animals into the north unit from Badlands National Park and also from Rocky Mountain Arsenal in Colorado, which uh-huh. is a fish and wildlife right. park. So we're trying to understand uh, theoretically uh, using modeling and other techniques with genetics, and then on the ground looking at integration of those animals that we bring in from, from other places to augment our herds. So why and when was the park itself established by Congress? So the park was established in 1947 as Theodore Roosevelt National Memorial Park. So that was the South Unit and the Elkhorn Ranch Unit. And it was established to honor the memory of Theodore Roosevelt. The North Unit was added in 1948. And in 1978, Congress redesignated the area as Theodore Roosevelt National Park. It also established the 29,920-acre Theodore Roosevelt Wilderness at the park's north unit and part of the south unit. So is there any uh, any evidence of glacial activity in the past in the park area? Yeah, I think I can address that one. Um, you know, the, the southwest corner of North Dakota was not ice-covered uh, during the last glacial period. Uh-huh. Uh, however, some upland plateau areas of the park's north unit show evidence of glacial activity including glacial erratics, these rocks that would have been carried and then dropped by glaciers. Uh-huh. So uh, glaciers did touch some parts of the northern uh, most reaches of the park. Is there any ac- any geologic activity that goes on in the area? Well, the, the landscape is basically shaped by water and wind. So uh-huh. that's, that's what creates this. The erosion uh, creates the, the badlands that we have uh, here in the park. And it's uh, it's that movement of, of water through the ground that uh, you know creates a lot of the slumping and other activities that we observe. Um, you know, it is part of the natural landscape and and what the the wildlife experiences here and the native plant communities have uh, you know developed to uh, be in harmony with. From a, a infrastructure standpoint, the, the movement of land certainly creates some issues with uh, maintaining our, our park uh, scenic roads. Uh-huh. So that would be the, the biggest area that we see uh, in, in real time issues with, uh, with land movement. How many miles of road are there within the park units? Don't have the total number of, of the mileage in the park. I yeah. can tell you with that south unit scenic loop road, Currently, six miles of it are not open to the public because, as Blake mentioned, that that dynamic movement actually took out a piece of the road. So for the last couple of years, we've been working on getting that road repaired, six miles of the scenic loop in the south unit. I see. Okay, and uh, how large a staff do you have at the park? We've got roughly 24, 25 permanent employees, people that are here year-round. Uh-huh. And then we almost double that number in the summer. We take on about another 20 seasonal employees that work here just during the summer season to help us take care of the influx of visitors. Because the vast majority of our visitors, they come here in uh, May, 
June, July, and August. June, July, and August are the busiest months of the year. Uh huh. And what what do they actually come to see at uh, TR? Oh, everybody's got a different reason for coming to the park. <laughs> some of them are coming to see the wildlife. Some are coming to to experience the geology and the incredible beauty here. There are people that come because they want to learn about Theodore Roosevelt. They want to see his cabin. They want to go to the Elkhorn Ranch where he had his ranch house constructed. Uh-huh. So probably for every visitor that we have, there is another reason why they come. Oh, yeah. So tell me about the landscape. So you have grasslands and badlands, prairie. You have a very diverse uh, landscape, don't you? And some lakes as well. And the river. Yeah, that's that's true. Um you know the the habitat as I mentioned includes that erosive landscape of buttes and drainages. Um, we have mixed grass prairie and sage scrublands along the river. There are cottonwood galleries and there are ash draws and drainages of side channels. And then on most north-facing slopes, it are covered by juniper. So it's, it's pretty diverse in, in that uh, respect. Um, Sage scrublands occur along uh, many of the of the valley bottoms as well. And you have parts of both the north and south units designated as wilderness. Is that right? That's correct. There's 29,920 acres, if I'm citing that right, of designated wilderness in the park. So a little over 10,000 of that is in the south unit, mostly west of the Little Missouri River. But nearly all of the north unit, uh, at least... Uh, about 19,000 acres uh, is wilderness. So was that has that area always been undeveloped, or did they have to remove development structures in order to designate it as wilderness? My understanding is that many parts of the park uh, were once ranched. Looking at historic records, uh, there were roads that were reclaimed, and there are archaeological sites from where uh, settlers had homesteads that occur in the park, uh, but you know, decades have passed and, and much of uh, those human effects have been uh, overtaken by natural processes and you know, we, we have what pretty well represents a, a natural looking landscape, so you can still see some of the rep- remnants of that activity in the park. So let's talk about the wildlife. How many species of uh, birds are there in the park? or have have been identified in the park? You know, I, I'm not sure the exact number. It is an extensive uh, avifauna that we have here in the park. Um, includes resident and migratory species, so depending on when you might visit the park, what you would see would change. You know, notably, we have a lot of raptors, so golden eagle and bald eagle, we have a variety of hawks, falcons, uh, interesting species like burrowing owls that... Uh, are are here and interact on the prairie dog colonies. They use the prairie dog burrows for their nesting. Is the park on a flyway, north-south, a migratory route? I I don't offhand remember the exact flyways. I believe that we're not in direct alignment. We do see waterfowl here, but not like you see over on the east side of North Dakota um, with that flyway. So what other what other kind of uh, mammals do you have in the park? Well, sure. Um, you know, we have, I mentioned, the two bison herds. Uh, we do have a herd of feral horses in the south unit and a small population of longhorn steer in the north unit. 
Uh, elk and pronghorn antelope occur primarily in the south unit. And I say primarily because you know, these species range and sometimes they occur in different places. On the other hand, uh, bighorn sheep and moose occur primarily in the north unit. And uh -huh. prairie dogs are in both north and the south units. Uh -huh. uh, Whitetail and mule deer and a variety of uh, carnivores, including coyotes, badgers, fox, etc., uh, occur across all three units. Uh, we do have mountain lions, um, but uh, many carnivores that were here historically are absent, so bears, wolves, martens, and wolverines and minks <clears throat> might have passed through this area at one point or another. Some sightings of these species have been reported in western North Dakota, but we're not aware of the existence of, of those particular carnivores on parklands currently. And are the uh, are the bison uh, genetically pure, or do they have some cattle genes uh, mixed in? Yeah, so that's one of the questions that we've looked at with molecular tools uh, in recent decades. Uh, we understand that there are some cattle genetics in the in the park bison herd. Um, there's much research going on right now uh, to better understand uh, bison population genetics and cattle integration. Um, you know, I would be citing off the cuff, uh, you know, if we're talking about nuclear versus mitochondrial genetics. Uh, in terms of mitochondrial genetics, we don't have uh, cattle uh, mitochondrial DNA in, in the park herd, but there is some small segment of the nuclear genome that uh, appears to have some cattle integration. We think that uh, this is something like 1% to 2% of the nuclear genome, but research is ongoing. How are the bison contained within the park boundary, or do they wander outside? Yeah, the bison are contained by a, a perimeter fence. It's woven wire, and it's uh, six to seven feet in height. So all three units actually are, are fenced. The north and south unit have that seven-foot uh, woven wire to keep the bison in, and uh, the elkhorn has barbed wire. Uh, the fence also serves to keep uh, livestock from outside of the park uh, entering parklands. And uh, then do you have any prairie dogs? Uh, do you have any other rodents? Uh, yeah, there are a variety of, of rodents, um, including prairie dogs. We have mice and bulls and a pretty, pretty complete assemblage of, of small uh, rodent species that are an important part of natural ecology and, of course, those small carnivores. It's part of their prey base that constitutes their diet. How about snakes and lizards? You know, it's, it's surprising. I think people may not realize the variety that we have here. Um, there's a number of, of amphibians and reptiles in the park. Tiger salamander, plains spadefoot toad, great plains toad, rocky mountain toad, boreal chorus frog, and leopard frog. In terms of uh, reptiles, we have prairie rattlesnakes. We have mm. racers, bull snakes, plains garter snakes, western hognose snake. We have snapping turtles and painted turtles, and you get into more upland areas, we see shorthorn lizards, and there's a, a sage lizard as well that's here in the park. Are there some species that were previously present and are no longer there? Yeah, uh, elk actually were, were extirpated in the area, along with uh, bighorn sheep, and pronghorn antelope were uh, decimated, and there were efforts during past decades to bring those species back. Uh, in particular, uh, the park was involved with reestablishing an elk herd in 1985 and some prior work to uh, bring bighorn sheep back to the area in, in cooperation with the state of North Dakota. 
I think of bighorn sheep in terms of elevated areas. Do you are there some mountains within a park area or higher elevation sites? It's it's not uh, what we would call mountains, but there are great uh, elevation changes from the tops of buttes down to the river bottom, and some of these steep escarpments uh, seem to be a good habitat for sheep. Uh huh. Are there any animals that are on the endangered species list? Uh, we uh, we have a list, so we consult with Fish and Wildlife Service to understand what species may be here. Uh, we're uh -huh. not aware of any that, that actually uh, frequent the park. Uh -huh. but there are some that may occur, and those include northern long-eared bat. It's uh, endangered or in the process. Uh, Tricolored bat, which is proposed endangered. Uh, piping plover, which is threatened. Uh, red knot, which is also threatened. Uh, whooping crane. Dakota skipper uh, and monarch butterfly, um, but like like I said, we have not had observation of these species on park lands uh, to suggest that uh, they're they're commonly here. Are there any cave areas that would provide habitat for bats? Uh, we don't have what would be technically called a cave. As I mentioned, with the water moving through the buttes, there's this clay substrate and intermingled with coal seams, uh, and water tends to flow along some of those uh, boundaries between layers in the strata, uh -huh. and it creates what's called uh, erosion tubes or sinkholes. And so there is potential for some uh, hibernation of, of bats in, in those uh, elements of the landscape. Um, but we don't have any actual caves that would serve that purpose. So you have some responsibility in regard to fire management. Have you had any serious fires in the park area? We have, and, and I'll say my, my role with fire is more administrative. I have uh, the Border Park uh, Fire Zone uh, that reports to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, so we mm -hmm. have staff that are stationed here at Theodore Roosevelt as well as over at Voyagers uh, National Park, and we service eight MPS units uh, for uh, fuels and prescribed firework, as well as suppression. Um, 2021 was a, a very dry year, and you know, we're in a semi-arid environment, and we have more, more moisture some years and less uh, others. Mm -hmm. When we get really dry, we can have uh, a fire that starts for a variety of reasons, and uh, we had a, a large one just south of Medora that started on Forest Service uh, that approached the park. And within a couple days, we had another large start on Forest Service just north of our north unit. And uh, that one actually burned into uh, much of, of the north unit. So we do have a lot of potential for wildfires here. And I mentioned the, the coal seams that are everywhere in the buttes will sometimes catch fire. So we'll have coal seams that will burn and smolder for many years, and uh, currently we think we have several dozen of those that are on fire, and when we have moisture, for instance, this fall or this, this year, we've been more moist than we were in 2021 when those two large fires occurred. Uh, those things tend to smolder and, and not uh, pop up, but when we get into a dry cycle again, then those ongoing coal seam fires can come to the surface and start new fires for us to address. So we have very, very active fire season, some dry years here at Theodore Roosevelt. And of course, um, different habitats at other ends of the zone, and so our fire personnel stay very busy, 
and we work collaboratively with uh, interagency fire with other uh, federal, uh, state, and local agencies to cooperatively work to, to manage wildfire. So by manage, uh, what is your policy? Do you let fires just burn themselves out, or do you have any suppressive techniques? It's it's mostly suppression when, when a, a fire starts that is, um, you know, uh, from, from whatever unintended cause. You know, we, we look at the landscape, and we have uh, sort of a mosaic of clay buttes and uh, intermingled with uh, habitat, vegetation that uh, will burn. And so we try to identify the places that we can hold the line against fire moving. And so we're not a huge park. We do have neighbors, and mm-hmm. we work to uh, fight fire as best we can to prevent uh, it leaving the park or burning across the park, et cetera. So we try to suppress and, and hold the line where we can with wildfires. Do you have some unique plants in the park? We, we do. Um, you know, I mentioned it's a mixed grass prairie that uh-huh. is much of the upland areas. Uh, there are a few species or taxa of plants that you know, have been identified as locally limited or rare in terms of how, how abundant they are. Uh-huh. Some of these are sedge species. There's some grasses. There's uh, one in particular known as needlegrass. Those are probably the, the most vulnerable to impacts because of their rarity in the park. Do you have any invasive species? Uh, among the plant? Uh, yes, and so we, we do have an active program to treat invasive plants. The, the two primary invasive species that we focus a lot of energy on are Canada thistle and leafy spurge. Do you have some cheatgrass? It's here. Yeah, <laughs> it's everywhere. Have you noticed as a result of climate change or changes in the plants that are that are growing in the park? I don't know that we have really had the ability to observe specific changes in vegetative communities. Uh, my understanding is that those are things that, that tend to take some time to uh, to shift in terms of what plants are uh, thriving and, and which are not doing so well to cause a, a, a particular change. But certainly it's something to think about, and we can understand from you know, how things have changed over the last 10,000 years that we've had different uh habitats and vegetative communities on the landscape that animals have been responsive to. So uh, we've looked at isotopes in bison teeth in North Dakota going back thousands of years and infer from those relationships what their diets were. And Uh we've seen those types of changes in the past. And bison tend to be a pretty resilient species. So I think one of the things I could point to is, you know, working to make sure that we have a healthy herd that are genetically diverse that will have that broad genetic playbook to deal with uh, change in the, the forage and the habitat uh, that they they have in front of them over time. So you found fossils uh, within the park? Yes, we have a pretty extensive fossil resources here at Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Uh, they date to the Paleocene, uh-huh. so it's plant fossils, uh, invertebrates, uh, things like uh, bivalves and snails. Uh, some vertebrate species assemblages as well that uh, are globally rare. Um, these particular formations that occur in the park are just not at the surface in many places in the world. So uh-huh. it's, uh, it hosts a, a unique assemblage of fossils that are scientifically important. Do you have some uh, fossil research projects going on in the park? 
We uh, work with the state of North Dakota. Right. Our paleontologists have ongoing work in the park. We recently completed a, a paleontological inventory to help us better understand the abundance and distributions in the park as uh -huh. well of these fossil resources. And that's important because when we're doing things like repairing roads, we want to understand uh, what may be in those areas that we want to uh, avoid and preserve. And also just to help us understand where some of these fossils are to monitor and protect them. The Bakken oil boom really uh, affected that, that part of the country. Has the park been uh, disturbed by the, the oil boom? The park has been impacted by the oil boom in a few different ways, uh, one of which is just bringing new people in. So we're getting people in visiting who normally might not have had an opportunity. But there's also the flaring that goes on, burning off the natural gas that can impact our night skies, particularly mm. in the north unit of the park. Mm -hmm. uh, flaring has an impact. And when you bring in a lot of people to the area, that impacts housing. So sure. the housing market is a uh, is tighter, and as well as the financial, trying to be able to hire employees, particularly locally. Uh, they've kind of been hired up by the oil boom. So we've had some challenge with housing, and we've had some challenge with um, being able to find enough employees. But for park natural resource impact, probably the biggest is that it's the flaring. Uh-huh. I, I saw on the website that uh, there's a livestock plan. Uh, is that, uh, what's the status of that right now? Uh, well, we are basically out for comment with an environmental assessment. Uh -huh. so individuals can navigate to our uh, our project site and, and comment. They can view the, the environmental assessment and then formulate comments to submit on it. Uh, the purpose of the plan is to address livestock, so specifically horses and cattle herds within the park under relevant laws, regulations, policies, and management priorities, including the conservation of native species and natural prairie ecosystem functions. In North Dakota, uh, are bison considered livestock, as they are in Montana? So state by state, there are, are different perspectives on bison. And yes, in North Dakota, they are considered livestock. The National Park Service on federal lands considers them to be wildlife. So are there any other effects of climate change that you can see, and what do you anticipate is ahead of you? Uh, you know, I, I don't, as I mentioned before, uh, know that we have specific on-the-ground day-to-day changes that we're observing and recording. Uh -huh. I, I will say that we have an air, monitor, air quality monitoring station where we're collecting data, and you know, those are building... Uh, information that can help us understand uh, not only just uh, any any pollution effects or things of that nature, but mm -hmm. changes in, in weather and changes potentially in the long term as what we understand is climate. But uh, concerns would include, you know, under a climate change scenario, uh, precipitation, so the extremes of potential floods or droughts um, might go hand-in-hand -hand with altered fire patterns. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, potential changes in plant community in response to uh, different precipitation mm -hmm. and temperatures. And what would come with that would be changes in foraging behavior for wildlife. I think there's probably also implications for exotic species control. For the coming summer, uh, what do you expect in terms of your climate? 
Boy, I really don't have a long-range forecast. Um, it's it's hard for us to, to know um, what it's going to be. We'll have to see what the precipitation is over the winter uh, to get a, and spring to really get an understanding of, of okay. what things are going to be like for us here in terms of uh, moisture and the plant community response. I think it's supposed to be an El Nino year, isn't it? So that could have some yeah, effect. That, that's what I've heard. I. Uh, I don't know if I'm well-versed enough to comment <laughs> beyond that. Right, right. Well, we've run out of time, but I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. This has been great. And uh, I'd like to like to get up there and visit Theodore Roosevelt Park. So thank you very much. Yep. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Our guests today have been Maureen McGee-Bollinger, Deputy Superintendent, and Blake McCann, Director of Resource Management, at Theodore Roosevelt National Park in northwestern North Dakota. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to js-wilderness.com and see if additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell. <laughs>